Hello, guys, and welcome to Grow Series, an MCAT review podcast. In this second episode of the biology and biochemistry section here, we'll be talking about the cardiovascular system. As you can probably tell, this is pretty biology focused. And just like with psychology and sociology, this podcast should not be your main source of content. Take your content from books, notes, whatever. This is more of a passive supplemental source of content for when you're in the car, on your daily commute, or you're walking your dog, whatever you're doing, just to run through concepts in your head so you get more accustomed to them and you can get that score you're aiming for come test day. Also, another heads up, like I always say, I'm human, I can make mistakes. If I do make a mistake, let me know via email, but I do try my best to double and triple check all my sources to make sure everything is correct for you guys. So in this episode, like I said, we'll be talking about the cardiovascular system. We'll be going over topics like the heart anatomy, the types of blood cells, arteries, veins, capillaries, blood types, coagulation, and more. So let's not waste any time. Let's get right into it. All right. So what is the cardiovascular system? Where does it start and end? Well, it's basically the heart, the blood vessels, and blood. We'll start with the heart because that's the most obvious. The heart is basically four chambers. If you look down and think about your own heart, not a heart on the diagram, then the two chambers on the right are pumping the used up deoxygenated blood you have to the lungs and the left side moves the fresh blood from the lungs to the rest of the body. We call that movement of deoxygenated blood to the lungs pulmonary circulation and then oxygenated blood to the rest of the body is systematic circulation. So you've seen the diagram of a heart once or twice I'm sure. You know the four chambers are basically a box. There's two on top next to each other and two on the bottom next to each other. The two on the top are the atria, the two on the bottom are the ventricles. So think of the letter A coming before the letter V, so atria are above the ventricles. Atria, they're thin-walled structures. Again, if we're looking down at our own heart, the right atria gets blood from the vena cava, a vein used to transfer deoxygenated blood, and then the left atria gets blood from the pulmonary veins. And just a heads up, arteries are always carrying blood away from the heart. So here we got a vein bringing deoxygenated blood into your right atria and the pulmonary vein bringing oxygenated blood into your left atria. You might be like, wait, what? That doesn't make sense, but it does. The pulmonary arteries take blood away from the heart into the lungs and the pulmonary veins bring blood into the heart from the lungs. Ventricles are the bottom two compartments of the heart. They're much more muscular than the atria and there's a reason for that. The ventricles aren't just pumping the blood from one compartment to another like the atria do. The ventricles are actually pumping them into different organs. So one more time, if we look down at our own heart, then the right ventricle, that pumps blood into the lungs so we can get fresh oxygen. The left ventricle pumps blood into the whole body. So obviously, you need some strong contractions to do that so the ventricles are way more muscular than the atria. Now we have the atrioventricular valves. These are the valves that unsurprisingly separate the atria from the ventricles. They're tricuspid and bicuspids, and that might be a little confusing to remember you know, where the tricuspid is or where the bicuspid is, but a good way to remember that is tricuspid has the letter R in it, tricuspid. So you know tricuspid is in between the right atria and the right ventricle. Bicuspid, aka the mitral valve, 
then it has to be the other side, right? Between the left atria and the left ventricle. So those were the two atrioventricular valves. We also have semilunar valves. These separate the ventricles from the vasculature. Vasculature meaning arteries, veins, capillaries, all that stuff. No mnemonic is needed for these because they're pretty self-explanatory. Pulmonary valve is a valve that separates the right ventricle from the lungs. And the aortic valve is the valve that separates the left ventricle from the aorta. Okay, so we got the heart anatomy done. Let's talk about contractions and conduction before we leave the heart. So contraction, there are two words you got to know, systole and diastole. And that's what you see on your blood pressure. The top number is the systolic blood pressure and the bottom number is the diastolic blood pressure. So systole is ventricular contraction. So that means the bottom two compartments are contracting. When the bottom two compartments are contracting, we obviously don't want blood to flow backwards. So we're going to close those atrioventricular valves. And remember, the atrioventricular valves are the tricuspid and bicuspid valves. Tricuspid is on the right because it has the letter R in it. Bicuspid is on the left. So the atrioventricular valves are closed as systole occurs, which means ventricular contraction. The blood is pumped out of the ventricles. Then we got diastole. The heart is relaxed here and the atrioventricular valves are actually open. Blood kind of drips down from the atria and fills the ventricles. The semilunar valves are closed so blood doesn't leak into the vasculature. And we also have this formula for cardiac output. Cardiac output is the total blood volume pumped by a ventricle in a minute. So it's how much blood the bottom two compartments are throwing out in a minute. So cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume. The stroke volume is the volume of blood pumped by the ventricles in every beat. So if the ventricle pumps 2 milliliters of blood every beat, which, spoiler, it doesn't, but if it does, then that would be the stroke volume. If the patient's heart rate is 70, then 70 times 2 equals 140, so we can conclude that the cardiac output is 140 milliliters per minute. Alright, so now electrical conduction. Electrical impulses start at the SA node, which is the sinoatrial node. The sinoatrial node runs between 60 and 100 signals per minute, and the brain is not involved at all. The sinoatrial node is an independent node who don't need no brain. The SA node is chilling in the wall of the right atrium, so let's look down at our heart again. It's on the right side. So the node causes a little depolarization wave, and it doesn't only cause the right atrium to contract, it actually causes both the right and the left atrium to contract. Boom, so those contract, there's this atrial pressure, and that forces a little bit of blood into the ventricles. That little squeeze and drip of blood into ventricles is called the atrial kick. So then we have the signal from the SA node hit the AV node. The AV node is the atrioventricular node. So the location is pretty self-explanatory. It's between the right atrium and the right ventricle. But the AV node gets hit in a slight delay. So we can make sure this SA node does its job to drip some blood into the ventricles. The AV node goes ahead and carries that electrical signal to the bundle of his and the Purkinje fibers. And that causes the ventricles to contract. Boom, so that is electrical conduction. Now let's talk about arteries, capillaries, and veins for a second. Now, I said before, blood always travels away from the heart and arteries, so arteries equals away. The main artery that leaves the heart is the aorta. Arteries then branch into arterioles, so that's like mini arteries, and those branch into smaller capillaries later on. So the blood is passing through the capillaries. That oxygen gradient is occurring where the organs are using the oxygenated blood that the arteries gave it. Finally, it leaves through venules, 
those venules become veins, and that goes back to the heart. So all the blood vessels are lined by endothelial cells. That's so that we can properly maintain the blood vessel by vasodilating, which is getting bigger, and vasoconstricting, which makes the blood vessel smaller. We want to maintain a blood pressure. If I run around a lot and my blood is really flowing and the arteries don't vasodilate in response to that intense blood flow, bad things can happen. A small tidbit to know is that arteries have a lot more smooth muscle than veins. That's because the arteries are really pumping and pushing away and smooth muscle helps with that. Now, like I said, arteries are always away from the heart. So it would make sense that arteries are always carrying oxygenated blood. But there's two exceptions, two places where arteries don't contain oxygenated blood. We talked about one before, and that is the pulmonary artery. The pulmonary artery goes away from the heart into the lungs to get oxygenated. The second example is the umbilical artery. The umbilical artery leaves the baby and goes to the placenta to get oxygenated blood. So it's technically leaving the baby's heart, but since the baby itself can't breathe, and get oxygen, anything leaving the baby is used up blood. So two arteries that carry deoxygenated blood are the pulmonary artery and the umbilical artery. Capillaries are super small. They have a single endothelial cell layer, so red blood cells have to pass through in a single file line. They have thin walls, so gases, nutrients, and waste can easily diffuse, and they're really delicate. If they are damaged, they can actually leak blood into the interstitial space. And if you've ever had a bruise, which of course you have, that's just some capillaries breaking. Veins are the last ones here and they're thin-walled and inelastic compared to arteries, which are super strong and elastic. So arteries can adjust based on blood pressure. Veins, they carry deoxygenated blood. They don't really have to adjust, you know, based on blood pressure as much. So they have less smooth muscle. There's two exceptions for veins, of course, and they mirror the two exceptions of arteries. So they're pulmonary and umbilical veins. You know, they carry oxygenated blood. The veins are able to collect blood. They're chill where the arteries are all like, go, 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 push the blood. The veins are less rigid. They allow the blood to relax on the journey back to the heart. In fact, almost 70% of your blood volume is in your veins. So let's say you're standing, you know, without that go, go, go mentality that arteries have, how do veins push blood to the heart? That's through the use of valves. So valves are used to make sure there isn't any backflow. It goes one direction. It's kind of like a saved game status. Even if you die in a later level of the game, you still go back to that save. So even if the blood doesn't push to the next valve, it's not going to backflow any further than the last valve it passed. Let's also talk about portal systems. So that's when blood passes through two capillary beds. Blood that drains from one capillary bed flows through large vessels to supply the blood of another capillary bed. Normally, capillary beds are just to deliver oxygen to tissues. The three portal systems, though, they have other functions beyond oxygen delivery. And there's three examples you got to know about, and they are in the liver, the kidneys, and the brain. The hepatic portal carries blood from the capillary beds which are in the walls of the gut through the hepatic portal vein and towards the capillary beds in the liver. What's the point of that? Well, so that the nutrients you digested can get stored and metabolized in the liver. We want to break down those nutrients that we gained. The kidney one is the renal portal. Blood here leaves the glomerulus and travels through an efferent arterial before it surrounds a nephron in a capillary network. Was that too confusing? 
probably. So first, it goes near the Bowman's capsule where filtration occurs and lots of stuff in the blood gets taken out. Then the blood travels to the next capillary bed around the nephron where it can reabsorb most of the things that were just taken out. Finally, there's one in the brain and that is the hypophyseal portal. The hypophyseal portal system delivers oxygen and also acts as the communicator between the hypothalamus and the anterior pituitary. The hypothalamus sends hormones through the blood right to the anterior pituitary. The portal system brings the blood first to the hypothalamus and then right to the anterior pituitary instead of it having to go through the whole body. If you listen to the episode about reproduction and embryogenesis, you know that the anterior pituitary is important because it gives all those important hormones like the follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone, which control the production of estrogen and testosterone. Now let's talk about blood. Blood is about 55% liquid and 45% cells. The plasma is the liquid portion of the blood and it's just a mixture of nutrients, salts, respiratory gases, hormones, etc. Serum is the blood plasma with the clotting factors removed. So plasma is a liquid portion of blood. Serum is blood plasma without clotting factors. All the cells can be divided into three categories, erythrocytes, leukocytes, and platelets. So erythrocytes are red blood cells. It's the only word out of these three words with the letter R in it. So you know erythrocytes um, has the letter R, has to do with red blood cells. These erythrocytes are made for oxygen transport. Oxygen is not polar, so it can't travel in aqueous environments like the cytoplasm. So erythrocytes use hemoglobin to bind four molecules of oxygen. And one red blood cell can contain one billion molecules of oxygen. Red blood cells are biconcave, so they're concave on both sides, and that increases the surface area and helps them travel through capillaries. Now, I said erythrocytes are made for oxygen transport. To pack in the most amount of hemoglobin, and therefore the most amount of oxygen, red blood cells throw out the nucleus, throw out the mitochondria, all those other organelles. They rely solely on glycolysis for ATP. They don't use mitochondria at all for energy. And since they don't have a nucleus, they can't divide by mitosis. They just get recycled either by the spleen, the liver, or the lymph nodes. Leukocytes are the second blood cells I talked about. They're white blood cells. Leukocytes are pretty low-key. Less than 1% of your total blood volume are white blood cells, but they help a ton when you got crazy things like infections going on. There are three categories of leukocytes or white blood cells that I'll talk about, so it's not as simple as red blood cells. We first have granulocytes, as the name implies, they have granules. Um, The granules are basically these packs of chemicals that are toxic to invaders. When you get allergies or pus formation, an inflammation or anything like that, it's because granulocytes are releasing these toxic compounds to fight microbes. A-granulocytes, emphasis on the A, don't have granules. They include lymphocytes and monocytes. So I'll talk about monocytes first because they're more broad. They engulf foreign matter like bacteria. Monocytes are also called macrophages when they enter an organ. So in the nervous system, monocytes are called microglia. In the skin, they're called Langerhans cells. And in the bone, they're called osteoclasts. These macrophages can engulf and destroy invaders, or they can go ahead and bring the retired red blood cells to red blood cell heaven. So lymphocytes, they're more involved in the specific immune response. They can act as primary responders to infection or as long-term memory banks for pathogen recognition. If you get the coronavirus, your body makes an immune response 
based on these for future pathogen recognition. Vaccines also work by training these cells, these lymphocytes, with the small side effect of giving you autism. Just kidding. I'm not anti-vax, I promise. The last type of blood cell I'll be talking about are thrombocytes, aka platelets. These are cell fragments or shards that are released from the cells in the bone marrow, and they can assist with blood clotting. So let's just dig a little deeper on this topic of blood clotting. Clots are basically made of coagulating factors, which are proteins, and then platelets, which are thrombocytes. The whole reason for clots is to prevent blood loss. So if the endothelium of a blood cell is damaged, there's some underlying connective tissue that gets exposed, right? But the body has a plan for these types of situations. The tissue has collagen and tissue factor. When platelets come into contact with that collagen, they're like, yep, there's definitely an injury here, and they start to clump together. Then there's coagulation factors. They sense the tissue factor and initiate this cascade. So connective tissues collagen alerts the platelets, and their tissue factor alerts the coagulation factors. Now the complex activation cascade for the coagulation factors can get a little confusing, so let's focus right now. We start off with prothrombin. And through the magic of thromboplastin, it converts to thrombin. The way I remember which one is doing what is I remember this scenario in the Hollywood Hills and someone's going in for plastic surgery. So we got pre-surgery, prothrombin, being operated on by thromboplastin. See, thromboplastin is the plastic surgeon. And that thromboplastin does a wonderful job and converts the prothrombin to thrombin. Weird example like that, I don't know, stuck with me, so I'm telling you guys. Anyway, so thrombin doesn't finish the job. It's like a relay race. They pass off the baton to fibrinogen to become fibrin. So thrombin was so inspired by their own surgery, they became a surgeon themselves and were able to convert fibrinogen to fibrin. So at this point, we're done. Fibrin makes these small fibers and makes a sort of net that's able to clot. Boom, clot achieved. So to run it back, prothrombin goes into surgery. Thromboplastin is the plastic surgeon that converts it to thrombin. So prothrombin to thrombin. Thrombin is so inspired by that surgery, they do their own to convert fibrinogen to fibrin. And fibrin makes a net to clot. So we plugged up the injury. When we got to break down the clot, we break it down using this stuff called plasmin, which comes from plasminogen. All right, so blood types, what causes people to have different blood types? That's the antigens in your blood. There are a total of eight types of blood types possible. So an antigen is basically something the immune system reacts to. There are things B cells can make antibodies for to target. We're composed of three alleles for blood type, A, B, and O. We have the antigens for these due to E. coli in the gut. So if someone has a type A blood, they have A antigens. So someone can be type A, type B, type AB, or type O. So we have three alleles for blood types, but we have four types. Just depends on which antigens they have. There's another variation for blood type, and that's the RH factor. So that's how we get a total of eight blood types. Four letter variations from the ABO antigens, type A, type B, type AB, and type O, and then being positive or negative RH for any of them. The rhesus factor, RH, is a type of protein found on the outside of red blood cells. The protein is genetically inherited. If you have the protein, you're RH positive. If you didn't inherit it, you're RH negative. The interesting thing, though, is let's say we got a mother who does not have the rhesus factor. Then she has her first baby who is RH positive, 
All right, so her body's like, okay, it's a little weird. Let's make some anti-RH antibodies. Then let's say her second baby is also RH positive and she's birthing the baby, but her RH antibodies will recognize the RH proteins on the surface of the baby's blood cells as foreign. Her antibodies will pass into the baby's bloodstream and start to attack those cells. This is super bad. It can make the baby's red blood cells swell and rupture, which can make the baby's blood cell count get really low. So how do we fix that? Well, the doctors prepare for it pretty early. When the mom is having the first baby and they learn the first baby is RH positive, when the mother is not, they give an RH immunoglobin vaccine. So they give one in the 28th week of pregnancy, and then they literally give one 72 hours before birth. That prevents the mom from making those scary anti-rhesus antibodies so that the second child will be fine. Pretty scary stuff for sure, and it's crazy how risky childbirth was before modern medicine. Alright, and we will conclude this episode with my personal least favorite in the cardiovascular system, and that's all the physiology and physics of it. So yay, worse for last. Alright, so blood pressure, we measure that with a sphygmomanometer. If you can spell that, then props, I definitely would have failed a spelling bee with that word. So that sphygmomanometer, which depicts blood pressure, indicates how effective that circulatory system is functioning. Pressure drops from arterial to venous circulation, but the biggest drop is across the arterioles. So when the blood is cruising between arteries and capillaries, the blood pressure drops the most. A great analogy for the chemistry slash physics beasts out there is that it's basically an electric circuit where the blood pressure is the driving force, just like voltage is in a circuit. So the formula for blood pressure is the change in pressure is equal to cardiac output multiplied by total peripheral resistance. And we know cardiac output is equal to heart rate multiplied by stroke volume. So if changes of pressure is cardiac output times total peripheral resistance, they can give you a little sneaky question where they don't give you the cardiac output, but they do give you heart rate and the stroke volume and want you to make two jumps there. Find the cardiac output first and then use that cardiac output to plug into the formula to find the change in pressure. Just a possible question I thought of. Your blood pressure is regulated by baroreceptors in the walls of the vasculature, which detects mechanical forces. When blood pressure is too low, the sympathetic nervous system is stimulated and that causes vasoconstriction and an increase in blood pressure. If the osmolarity is too high, ADH, antidiuretic hormone, releases and causes an increase in blood volume and therefore an increase in the blood pressure which explains why eating a lot of salt increases blood pressure. High salt equals high osmolarity. High osmolarity means high blood volume and therefore higher blood pressure. Aldosterone is another one. It increases sodium retention in the kidneys and increases blood pressure and volume. So kind of the same way, we keep the osmolarity higher so the blood pressure is higher. And then if blood pressure gets too high, the heart rate slows down and the vasculature relaxes. This peptide called ANP is secreted in the atrial cells and it allows salt excretion and lowers BP. But ANP isn't very strong, so basically there are a lot of ways to increase blood pressure but very few ways to organically decrease it. So definitely watch the amount of salt you eat. With gas and solutes, let's take this to the capillary level because that's where a lot of the magic happens. At capillaries, oxygen and nutrients diffuse out of the blood and tissues Meanwhile, waste products like CO2, urea, and hydrogen ions diffuse into the blood. We also get hormones secreted into capillaries, which travel with circulation. 
Everything that has to do with gas and solutes and capillaries is on a concentration gradient. The oxygenated blood in the capillary is at a higher concentration than that in the surrounding tissue, so oxygen slips to the surrounding tissue. Oxygen is interesting. We talked about how it was carried in the blood earlier, right? Specifically how it bound to hemoglobin. But you got to remember that the oxygen molecule, it binds to the group's central iron atom through a redox reaction. That makes sense because when you hear people are iron deficient anemic, it's because they don't have enough iron to produce hemoglobin to carry oxygen in these red blood cells. The affinity of heme and blood is something you get into with biochemistry, but I'll touch on it here. So we get this deoxygenated blood that is pumped out of the right ventricle through the pulmonary artery into the lungs. The oxygen goes through the lungs and diffuses into the alveolar capillaries. Once even one oxygen binds to the heme group, the shape of the hemoglobin relaxes. That relaxation is awesome because it tells the rest of the oxygens around it that this is a chill landing space and so we increase the affinity to oxygen and that is called cooperative binding. And just as fast as things come, things go. Oxygen leaves just as easily. Once one oxygen slips out, the rest can leave easier. Carbon dioxide. That's also important to know. CO2 isn't really carried to the lungs by the blood. It's carried mostly as a bicarbonate ion. When CO2 is made, the pH decreases. pH decrease means increased acidity. Increased acidity means an increase in hydrogen ions. So you have enough of these hydrogen ions that binds to hemoglobin and you start to decrease the hemoglobin's affinity to oxygen. That is known as a Bohr effect, B-O-H-R. So basically more CO2 is bad because it means we pick up oxygen a little harder. Now we're kind of divulging from the cardiovascular system, but let's talk about digestion for just a quick sec. So carbs and amino acids are absorbed in the capillaries of the small intestine and go through systematic circulation through the hepatic portal system. We talked about that portal system earlier. So they circulate to the liver through the hepatic portal vein and fats, those are absorbed into the lacteals of the small intestine. They skip that whole hepatic portal system step. But fats need to flow in blood and fats are nonpolar. Meanwhile, water is polar. So fats are packaged as lipoproteins to become water-soluble and therefore transferable. Waste, it travels down the concentration gradient as well, from tissues to capillaries, and they're filtered out of the kidneys. And finally, to conclude, let's end with fluid balance. We got hydrostatic pressure, that's force per unit area that the blood exerts against the vessel walls. Hydrostatic pressure is generated by the contraction of the heart and the elasticity of the arteries. To keep it simple, hydrostatic pressure is the pressure of the blood against the walls, and it opposes oncotic pressure, which I'll talk about right now. Let me just give you a breakdown of osmotic pressure first. So osmotic pressure is the sucking pressure generated by solutes as they attempt to draw water into the bloodstream. If we have a person with one gram of salt in them and another person with a thousand grams of salt in them, the one with a thousand grams of salt will have a higher blood pressure due to osmotic pressure. The solutes, aka the salt, draws water into the bloodstream. Oncotic pressure is basically fancy osmotic pressure. It's osmotic pressure but associated with proteins, specifically albumin. At the arterial end of the capillary bed, aka the start of the capillary bed, the hydrostatic pressure is way larger than the oncotic pressure and then there is water moving out of the capillary, 
but as we move slowly along the capillary bed, the hydrostatic pressure drops significantly as water moves out and the osmotic pressure stays the same. So by the time we're at the venule end, aka the end of the capillary bed, there's a net influx of water back into the circulation. So let's just put some numbers in here to make it make sense. So as we go along the capillary, the hydrostatic pressure decreases. That's just a fact. So let's say at the start of the capillary, it's at 50 millimeters of mercury. Then in the middle, it's at 30 millimeters of mercury. And finally, at the end, it's at 10 millimeters of mercury. So it decreases over time. But oncotic pressure stays the same throughout the whole journey. So let's say it's at 30 millimeters of mercury through the whole journey. Stays like that. Well, at the beginning, we have 50 millimeters of mercury hydrostatic pressure. Millimeters of mercury, if you don't know, is just a unit. So let's say we have 50 hydrostatic pressure and 30 oncotic pressure. A positive hydrostatic pressure here means we got to relieve the pressure somehow. We do that by pushing water out of the capillary. Then in the middle, let's say the hydrostatic pressure drops to 30. The oncotic pressure is still 30 here, so there's really no net movement. Finally, at the end, we have the hydrostatic pressure drop to 10, and that is less than the 30 of the oncotic pressure, so that's a negative pressure. Negative pressure means water gets pushed into the capillary, and that really helps the fluid circulate. So at this point, we're actually done with the content for the episode. Overall, definitely not too difficult of an episode. I mean, the most complex thing I would think of is the clotting cascade, and that's really not too terrible. If you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, I would love if you can rate or review this. If you're listening at all at this point, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever it is, please follow for more MCAT content or subscribe. The wording just depends on what app you're using. But yeah, follow or subscribe. That would be much appreciated. As I've been doing lately, I'll give you a high yield summary of concepts that I personally found important. So let's start off with atria and ventricles. Pretty basic stuff. Right atria gets blood from the vena cava. It's all deoxygenated blood. And ventricles are the two bottom compartments and are more muscular than the atria. But the left ventricle is the most muscular because it pumps blood to the whole body. We learned about the tricuspid and the bicuspid valves and how the tricuspid has the letter R in it. So you know it's between the right atria and the right ventricle. We have two semilunar valves. Um, the pulmonary valve is the valve that separates the right ventricle from the lungs. The aortic valve is the valve that separates the left ventricle from the aorta. Let's see, we also talked about how systole is ventricular contraction, diastole is heart relaxation. We talked about cardiac output being heart rate times stroke volume. Talked about electrical conduction. The SA node is near the right atrium and it contracts the atriums. The AV node gets hit and it's between the right atrium and the right ventricle, and that goes ahead and carries the electrical signal to the bundle of Hiss in the Purkinje fibers, and that causes the ventricles to contract. A small tidbit to note is that arteries have a lot more smooth muscle than veins. That's because the arteries are really pumping and pushing away, and smooth muscle helps with that. We also talked about the two exceptions to the rule that arteries contain oxygenated blood, Two places where arteries don't contain oxygenated blood. The pulmonary artery going away from the heart into the lungs to get oxygenated. And the second example is the umbilical artery. And the umbilical artery leaves the baby and goes to the placenta to get oxygenated blood. So it's technically leaving the baby's heart. But since the baby itself can't breathe and get oxygen, anything leaving the baby is used up blood. So two arteries that carry deoxygenated blood, pulmonary artery and umbilical artery. Veins are the last ones here and they're thin-walled and inelastic, 
compared to arteries which are super strong and elastic. So arteries can, you know, adjust based on blood pressure. Veins carry deoxygenated blood, but there's two exceptions to the veins, of course, and they mirror the two exceptions of arteries. Those are pulmonary and umbilical veins. Oh, and another important thing we talked about were the portal systems, those being the liver, the kidneys, and the brain. A portal system is when blood draining from the capillary bed of one structure flows through larger vessels to supply the capillary bed of another structure before returning to the heart. The hepatic portal carries blood from the capillary beds in the walls of the gut through the hepatic portal vein and towards the capillary beds in the liver. The kidney one is the renal portal. Blood here leaves the glomerulus and travels through an efferent arterial before it surrounds a nephron in a capillary network. Finally, there's one in the brain, the hypophyseal portal. The hypophyseal portal system delivers oxygen and also acts as the communicator between the hypothalamus and the anterior pituitary. The portal system brings the blood first to the hypothalamus and then right to the anterior pituitary instead of it having to go through the whole body. We talked about cells a lot. Red blood cells, they don't divide by mitosis, they just get recycled. That's because they threw out all the unnecessary baggage like the nucleus, the mitochondria, and all those other organelles just so they can pack more oxygen in. We also talked about the white blood cells. We have granulocytes, and as the name implies, they have granules. Uh, the granules are packs of chemicals that are toxic to invaders. We have agranulocytes, emphasis on the A, they don't have granules. They include lymphocytes and monocytes. Monocytes are macrophages in the nervous system. Monocytes are called microglia. In the skin, they're called Langerhans cells. In the bone, they're called osteoclasts. Macrophages engulf and destroy invaders. Lymphocytes are more involved in the specific immune response. They can act as primary responders to infection or as long-term memory banks for pathogen recognition. Then we also talked about platelets, which are used for blood clotting. We got in-depth with blood clotting. So an example, let's say the endothelium of a blood vessel is damaged. There's some underlying connective tissue that gets exposed, but the body has a plan for these types of situations. The tissue has collagen and tissue factor. When platelets come into contact with that collagen, they detect an injury and start to clump together. Then the coagulation factors sense the tissue factor and initiate this blood clotting cascade. We go from prothrombin to thrombin by using thromboplastin. Thrombin goes ahead and converts fibrinogen to fibrin. Fibrin makes a clot. When we want to break up a clot, we use plasmin, which comes from plasminogen. We talked about the rhesus factor and how dangerous that can be for childbirth. If a mother is Rh negative and she has an Rh positive baby, her body makes anti-Rh antibodies because Rh is just a foreign chemical to the mom's body. The first child escapes the wrath of these antibodies, but the second child comes around, and if the second child is also Rh positive like the first one, we got an issue. The mom's antibodies will attack the baby's cells. We fix this by giving the Rh negative mom Rogam before childbirth. We got into an important equation and a few hormones. We talked about the formula for blood pressure, that being the change in pressure is equal to cardiac output multiplied by total peripheral resistance. And we know cardiac output is equal to heart rate multiplied by stroke volume. When blood pressure is too low, the sympathetic nervous system is stimulated and that causes vasoconstriction or an increase in blood pressure. If the osmolarity is too high, ADH, antidiuretic hormone, releases and causes an increase in blood volume and therefore an increase in blood pressure. 
which explains why eating a lot of salt increases blood pressure. High salt equals high osmolarity. High osmolarity means high blood volume and therefore high blood pressure. Aldosterone is another one. It increases sodium retention in the kidneys and increases blood pressure and volume. So kind of the same way, we keep the osmolarity higher so the blood pressure is also higher. And if blood pressure gets too high, the heart rate slows down and the vasculature relaxes. This peptide called AMP is secreted in the atrial cells and it allows salt excretion and lowers BP, but AMP is not very strong. All right, we talked about the affinity of heme in blood. Once one oxygen binds to a heme group, the shape of hemoglobin relaxes and we increase the affinity of oxygen. That's called cooperative binding. All right, next up, the Bohr effect, B-O-H-R. It's basically like a positive feedback of less oxygen with more carbon dioxide. With high CO2, we get more acidity. More acidity means hemoglobin has less affinity for oxygen. We talked about the different versions of pressure. Osmotic pressure is the sucking pressure generated by solutes as they attempt to draw water into the bloodstream. Oncotic pressure is osmotic pressure, but associated with proteins, specifically albumin. At the arterial end of the capillary bed, aka the start of the capillary bed, the hydrostatic pressure is way larger than the oncotic pressure, and then there is water moving out of the capillary. But as we slowly move along the capillary bed, the hydrostatic pressure drops significantly as the water moves out and the osmotic pressure stays the same. So by the time we're at the venule end, aka the end of it, there's a net influx of water back into circulation. All right, so that concludes the episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. The next episode, we'll be going over the cell super in depth. Then we'll go back into the systems. We'll talk about the digestive system in the episode after that and the respiratory system in the episode after that one. These episodes take a ton of time when it comes to finding good content, writing them, recording them, editing them. So don't expect these to come out every week or something crazy like that, especially with me being in med school right now. I'm just pumping as many out as I can for you guys for right now. And I appreciate all the support. See you guys on the next episode and good luck on the MCAT whenever you guys take it. Bye.